everyone. I'm Virginia Duan, also known as Mandarin Mama. I host this podcast, the Nuna Army Podcast, where we discuss the particular aspects and challenges of being a middle-aged BTS fan. I'm uh, the entertainment editor for Mochi Magazine, as well as a, a freelance writer and the founder of Raising Asian uh, Intimate Retreat for Asian Pacific Islander and Desi American Creatives and Influencers. All right, that was a lot to say. Today, my special guest is Hi everyone, I'm Edward Warrod. Um, I don't have any of those fancy titles. I am just sort of a BTS stan. Um, originally born and raised in Korea, moved to the States as a 1.5 multiracial generation uh, Korean American. Um, and have been living, has been living from Boston to Rhode Island to Washington DC to now Chicago. And who knows where the future will take me. Um, wherever Jin wants me to go, I'll follow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I approve of this open-mindedness. <laughs> what about RM, though? I mean, if RM told you like to move somewhere different than Jin, like what would you? <laughs> so I think th I think the difference between the two is Jin could be like, I need you to move to like to like Westboro, Kansas, right, or like a suburb of like in Kansas. I'd be like, yes, Jin, I will follow you. RM could say that. I'd be like, uh. But if RM would be like, oh, like, you just need to move to New York, they'd be like, okay, like, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Right? I'd follow anyone. I'd follow RM or Jin to New York. It's just a question of, like, would I follow you to us all-white suburb in Kansas? Uh, that's the real difference. <laughs> I mean, it's good to know where your boundaries live. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's very healthy to set them. Yes. So today, so last week, we discussed um, with Jeff Harry, like, performative activism, how that relates to like K-pop stands uh, using their platforms for good to support Black Lives Matter and also BTS. Uh, well, we recorded it before BTS made their statement. Oh no, they made their statement, but they did not reveal that they had donated a million dollars to Black Lives Matter. And um, and I feel like we talked a lot about you know different aspects of uh, I guess what activism could look like, and we mostly ended on like, oh, you should you know, figure it out yourself, like, like deal with your own internal biases and then be an activist. But we didn't actually say how. <laughs> so today we will be discussing a little, well, Ed, why don't you talk about what we were talking about today? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. I think on the follow-up to your last podcast episode, um, it's sort of how to go from performative to co-conspirator, right? Or mm. um, to be someone who's part of the movement. So uh, this really, this sort of assumes that you've come to the understanding and the place that you're like, yes, I can't sort of stay back. I'm not going to be silent anymore. I'm going to do more than just sort of post a kitschy Facebook status or a Twitter status. I'm going to go out and do something. And what does that look like? How does that look like? Mm -hmm. What if you're not comfortable with protesting? I think those are really the questions we want to sort of answer. Um, and hopefully answer in a BTS lens too, because I think BTS has actually done a lot when it comes to activism that people aren't aware of in different forms of activism. And that's why, I'm sure you discussed this, but that's why people in Dallas, the K-pop stands in Dallas, sort of crashed the Dallas police app, right? Mm -hmm. That wasn't a physical protest, but they took a lot of inspiration from sort of BTS's soft protests that they had done in the past and other issues, and sort of applied that sort of mindset to this area. And they did something that, was, that wasn't just performative. It was co-conspiratorship. It was becoming part of the movement. It was protecting other people. It was putting sort of their lives on the line in a different manner of speed. Okay. So could you give a little bit of background of maybe say like BTS's history of activism? Like just pretend we're all baby army. Because uh, you, <laughs> you have followed BTS from the beginning. And you said you started to stand, I think, I forget exactly when. 
um, but you, you've known about them since their debut. Yes. So I think I've known about them since their debut. I didn't really pay attention to them until, so I, when I was younger and I was sort of edgy, I was just like, I'm not good. And like much more conservative than Christian. I'm like, I'm not going to listen to any contemporary music, classical and Jesus rock for me. Um, I think, I think what was interesting though, is part of that transition was finding like sort of old traditional songs I was really familiar with that tied me back to my Korean heritage, Mm -hmm. but then finding them in a contemporary context. And one of the things that BTS did was a very famous cover of Adidang, right? So like a lot of like, when you go to Korea now and you hear Adidang, right? There are many, many versions, but one of the ones that I really enjoy actually is sort of BTS's take on Adidang, right? The K-pop version of Adidang. And they did that at KCON France, I believe. It was like my freshman year of college, I guess it would have been like... 2012, 2013, maybe 2014 at the latest. At the latest, it would be. And it's probably 2014 because they didn't even debut till June 2013. It was probably that could have actually been their first debut, um, not concert, but um, like international um, mm-hmm. debut where they went to KCON France and then performed. How do you know, right? It's interesting because no, no one really knows what Adidang means, but generally, like, the song is about, like, a lover who abandoned a different lover, and the, love, the lover who was abandoned sort of being like, I'm going to be stronger, and uh, how dare you? I'm going to curse you, right? Um, it, it represents sort of the pain and separation, the depression that comes with it, right? Mm-hmm. I started paying attention to it because a lot of BTS's songs... Um, really sort of deal with sort of depression, right? They deal with mm-hmm. relationships. They deal with how you get over relationships that you want to hold on to or cling on to. And I think that's a really universal and powerful message. Mm-hmm. But then sort of transition it into like things like Idol, where they like criticize Korean society and sort of like how Korean society treats or views them while paying them lip service mm-hmm. is another really, really great thing, right? So like, and then in their personal lives, like talk about body image issues, talk about expectations, talk about how they almost broke up. Like there's a very human aspect. And so that sort of let me BTS. I think what really, really was amazing to see and sort of BTS's history of activism beyond just sort of the personal scope or sort of the relationship scope through their music was when they started criticizing um, the conservative government of President Park Geun-hye in Korea. If you don't know, um, she was famous for her advisor who is a cult leader's daughter. Um, who sort of hijacked a lot of Korean politics and society without people really realizing it. Um, she was responsible for the botched response to a ferry sinking that killed an entire high school class in Korea. Um, and there was a lot of anger about it. And there was a, something called the candlelight movement in Korea. And it was about, it was millions of Koreans across uh, Korea. In Seoul, it was two to three million Koreans at any given time in the main uh, city square. Um, protesting to remove this president and to re- demand that she resign. And it was a really embattled government. It was a very peaceful protest movement. Um, and there was a lot of politics tied up in it. And mm-hmm. most Korean um, citizens before this had happened, as well as most Korean idols, didn't speak on politics. They didn't really care about politics. It's sort of, the country is running well. Why do we really care? So this was mm-hmm. really Korea's political awakening, right? Where people started actively participating in sort of, protest and politics again after the democratization back in the 1990s and 1980s. BTS comes in because they were the first major K-pop group to sort of say, we need further government investigation on all these charges against the current city government. We need further investigations on the ferry disaster, and we need to keep our government officials accountable, and we're going to protest as well. 
And this was really powerful, right? Idols don't do this. Companies in Korea are deathly scared of letting their idols or their actors do this because they're going to catch the eye of the government. Mm -hmm. uh, and this happened, right? President Park Geun-hye's government blacklisted BTS as a subversive movement, as someone who was against the government, and tried a lot to sort of take BTS down. The Korea's Korea's government is responsible for like Hallyu, right, or Hanyu, the Korean way, right, exporting uh -huh. Korean culture. If you look at the period in which BTS was pressing Park Geun-hye, suddenly all government accounts about B, uh, that were tweeting out BTS went silent. BTS had oh. to do all their uh, promotions again. They were sort of left on their own by the government, but that didn't stop them, right? They took a financial mm -hmm. hit, but they kept going. They knew their power, they knew their worth, they knew that justice came first, mm -hmm. and they kept going. And the Korean people eventually overthrew uh, the president, elected mm -hmm. a new one, and is well on their way to continuing de democratic reforms mm -hmm. uh, that ultimately increase participation. BTS has been really vocal on a personal scale about body image issues I have mentioned before since mm -hmm. then. Uh, their personal image struggles, their struggles with sort of relationships, right? This is like their entire like soul arc albums, right? Is always right. dealing with relationships and the pain of them and how to grow or what they look for in friendships sort of going mm -hmm. beyond the face value and becoming more mature friends. Yeah. So. That's sort of BTS's like background in activism, but then you go to things like today, Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter, and this is not an issue that's always on the periphery or the front forefront of any Korean, right? Um, Korea is extremely monoracial, extremely blood purist, very xenophobic towards darker skin folks, uh, brown Southeast Asians, black folks, black black Asians, brown Asians, you name it. If you're not a light skinned uh, full Korean. Um, you're, you're not going to have the most easy time when you're mm -hmm. in Korea. Um, and there are Black Koreans, right? There are Black Korean models. They mm -hmm. occupy every facet of Korean society, but they are not visible, and they are often among the most oppressed in Korean society. So, and it's considered taboo to sort of speak about them, right? Because to acknowledge people with darker skin, to acknowledge non- or rather to acknowledge multiracial Koreans exists, mm -hmm. sort of shatters this thin veneer or thin glass that we think of when we think of Korea, who, mm. what we think Koreans look like, what we think Koreans act like, what their cultural mm. backgrounds may be, how they're supposed to conform, um, how they look. It sort of destroys the notion of a blood purist nation and it sort of brings back the fact that a lot of Koreans have a lot of mixed heritages that they're not willing to admit because to admit that is to admit that the definition of Korean isn't just by blood, right? It's about oh, lived yeah. experience and cultural experience. So the existence of black, foreign blacks and browns in Korea, as well as black and brown Koreans, is something that is very taboo in Korea. I had a question. Um, yes. Is it also because it reminds Korea of different occupations? Yes, absolutely. So I think this is, I'm going to bring up Eugene Yang, for example, in BuzzFeed. He took a, so if you actually look at Korea as a whole, they don't actually have that many genetic testing companies that will test where your ancestors are from outside of Korea. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually, and most of them don't belong to these like big things like 23andMe or Ancestry, which is probably a good thing because they're selling data to government agencies, right? <laughs> but beyond that, sort of, it can bring up past examples of occupation, of non-blood purity, or like destroying Korean narratives. Most Koreans are mm. descendants from commoners, slaves, or serfs, right? They, their last names aren't royalty, they're not nobility. 
they're they're commoners and there's a lot of there's frankly a lot of honor right and a lot of like greatness in commoner blood right like they right. are the ones who like support the nation and build the nation not the nobility right. not the right. right but like there's a there's a stigma against lower blood and lower class structures historically in mm. korea that had a very strong confucian caste system so anyone with mixed blood traditionally in korea as long as you sort of conform to what Korean culture or Korean experiences were, weren't, weren't actually looked down upon, right? Like, uh, the Korean royal family has significant Japanese blood. Uh, the Japanese royal family believes that they have Korean blood. Um, the Korean royal family before the Joseon dynasty had Mongolian blood, right? Or Manchu blood. Um, everybody had Mongolian right, every, blood. <laughs> everyone had Mongolian blood. Um, but with its, with its history of occupation with Japan, that's when the narrative of blood purity really started becoming more prevalent again in Korean society mm. because it was a reminder of colonial occupation and losing it. So if you're oppressed people uh, being colonized by empire, right, you're going to stick mm -hmm. to what you know and stick to what you have yeah. to sort of separate yourself from that empire. And for Koreans, and unfortunately, we're seeing it now, was blood, right? But right. Eugene Yang took a BuzzFeed test, a BuzzFeed genetics test, Mm -hmm. And it showed that he was significantly Japanese and Chinese. And it wasn't some, oh. like, great, great ancestor, right? It wasn't, like, during the ancient days of, like, Yisun Shin or, like, the Imjin War, right? It was his great-grandparent. One of them was Chinese and Japanese. Like, he had significant... He was something like 40% not what we consider ethnic Korean blood. Oh, really? Right? That makes sense because Korea shares a border with China. <laughs> Korea shares a border with China. It was the land bridge for Japan to China and China to Japan, right? Like, there are mm. a lot of, there are lots of things about Korea that Koreans need to unpack. But to acknowledge black Koreans, to acknowledge brown Koreans, is con is considered to be against the idea of family, against the idea of blood purity, against this idea of what we call more like sunbi spirit, scholar or noble spirit, or oh. the yangban blood, right? Is it because it's from the Korean War, right? When the U.S. military came? That's that's when. Am, am I wrong on that? or About what? Sorry. The, like, the introduction of, um, like, black Koreans and ethnic, like... Actually, there's... So, actually, it's really interesting. If you look at some of the Korean clan... So, example, my Korean clan, mm -hmm. uh, what my family is... Our clan was founded by a Chinese guy in the 580s, right? A lot okay. of Korean clans have Japanese or Chinese roots. Um, a few of them have Uyghur roots, right? Like they're Middle Eastern, oh, they're dark skin Middle okay. Eastern. Some of them have Thai roots. One of them has Indian roots. Um, oh. There's there's a, two Korean clans by Dutchmen um, back in the 1500s. Dutchmen? Dutchmen, yeah, Dutchmen in the 1500s who ended up staying in Korea for various reasons. I and mean, Taiwan was occupied by the Dutch. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, right? And then, so there's significant evidence of foreign, or what, how should I put it, of foreigners who are Korean or became Korean mm. in Korean history. And then it mm -hmm. gets the Korean War, it becomes more prevalent because some of the U.S. military men are having relations with Koreans. Consensual um, or not. Consensual <laughs> or not. And a lot of them will just leave and not acknowledge that the person's pregnant. And then they'll leave mm -hmm. behind a multiracial baby. And what most people don't realize is the first adoptees out of Korea were multiracial Koreans. Um, and, oh. there, and there are not a lot of records of multiracial Korean adoptees individually because um, Korea didn't want to acknowledge that multiracial Koreans were a thing. And then the U.S. Oh. didn't want uh, an increase on Asians on the census. So they mm. both sort of just said, Whatever the father's nationality or ethnicity was, that's what we're going to put down on the forms. Oh, just awful on so many levels. 
Right, which is absolutely terrible, right? And luckily, I was born in a time where it wasn't that erasive, still erasive, still terrible, mm, still blood yeah. but not as bad. But so BTS is standing up for racial minorities in Korea has really spoken to me as someone who is a racial minority wherever I go. Right. Um, because there is no, there is no, other than Hawaii, right, there is no place with a plurality of multiracial Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads me to what you've probably talked about is BTS came out very strongly in favor of Black Lives Matter. And it wasn't yeah. just, it wasn't just U.S. Black Lives Matter. It was Korean Black Lives Matter. They donated mm-hmm. to a Korean Black Lives Matter chapter to sort of raise awareness over blood purity issues, but also Black lives and Black foreign lives, as well as Black immigrant lives in Korea. Um, and this has never been done before. This is the first time we've heard about sort of a Korean celebrity group, like publicly coming out in favor of a Korean minority Black lives, brown lives, immigrant lives. Matter oh. stance, right? Because other times Koreans donate to these like larger global, co- excuse me, global causes. Mm-hmm. Celebrities are donating to global causes outside of Korea that still gets them points in Korea, right? So Koreans can say something like, "It's really awful how Black people in America are treated." They can criticize America, but the moment that you criticize or donate to Korean Black Lives Matter issue, that becomes a whole different issue for them. So they donated to a Korean chapter of Black Lives Matter or not? The Black Lives Matter in, a, in the they US? They did both. They did both. They did, okay, they okay. did both, right? So Korean Black Lives Matter, or rather the movements in which American Black Lives Matters have supported or publicly announced relationships within Korea oh. have been given a boost by BTS funding, BTS donors, as well as BTS themselves. But for uh-huh. an undisclosed amount, this was much less known for various reasons, as well as the U.S. Black Lives Matter movement, got it, got it. who received a large amount of cash infusion from BTS, as well as BTS stands, who sort of followed their songs. Maximilian and Justina. Right, exactly, exactly. So BTS's BTS's history with activism is is intertwined with the group, and it's it's one that evolves. It's one that I think we a lot of us can relate to, right? They sort of start with personal activism, things that matter to them small criticisms of society and how it affects them, small things, uh, body image issues, uh, what people expect of them as society. But then they start evolving. They start criticizing governments. They protest against governments. Well, even from the beginning, right? Because they they did that. I think even before debut, RM, Sugar, and Jin did that Becoming an Adult song about railing against forced military service. And then they did the, what, Aldogas? The, um, Aldogas? Song? The one where they talk about the Guangzhou uprising and yes, 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 yes. Satori and then uh, and uh, I know J Hope has even referenced that a few times. Right, but I think I think it's sort of like these are things that affect them directly. Military mm. service affects them, right? Like right, right, right. Body image issues affect them. But thing, things like the ferry disaster, they affect society and the nation. But mm-hmm. for a lot of people who aren't aware of how that affects the individual, they can just kind of brush it off and say, "This doesn't affect me. I don't really yeah. give a crap." They started evolving, saying everything that is societal affects us. Mm. And even if it didn't, this is still something we should stand up for. Mm-hmm. So, which all leads us to this like long point, which is BTS has to have a long history of social activism in Korea right. mm-hmm. uh, that extends beyond its borders, but mm-hmm. they've done it in different ways. I think that's the point we really want to like get to, is that there are different ways, different actions that each person can take. Mm-hmm. Could you give, so let, let's say... <sighs> People are like me, kind of like baby armchair activists, right. um, keyboard warriors. So could you give kind of 
it, let's say we want to move beyond our personal sphere. Like, you know how celebrities always get in, act, become activists because, you know, like Christopher Reeves fell off a horse and became like a par paraplegic activist, right? Like, where someone's kid has something. And then, so I, I get when the personal becomes political, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, so, how do we, if we wanted to move beyond our personal sphere and wanted to be an activist, could you give us some advice or what? what your journey has been, like what, what we could do, what we could not do and to consider, to how to do it safely and if that's even possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think there is a level of risk, I want to put this disclaimer, there's always a level of risk that you take with any political activism you do, right? Mm -hmm. Age of the internet makes things much easier to sort of get involved in, but it also comes with risks, right? Governments are, including the U.S., are sort of tracking people through the internet, right? This is what mm -hmm. the Dallas police tried to do with protesters until K-pop stands crashed it, right? Um, <laughs> right. So even if you're not physically at a protest, even if you're just donating, like, there, it, can, it comes with risk. And you have to assess for yourself, what is the least risky for me or what am I comfortable with? Mm -hmm. Because it, ultimately, if you're comfortable or you're scared of doing something, Mm -hmm. um, you can be, you can be uncomfortable, you can be scared yeah. of doing something, but ultimately yeah. if you're going to physically go to a protest and that can paralyze you with fear, don't go. Like it's going to, these, these are not always going to police, protests against police brutality, against militarism, that directly go against empire structures, that directly go, say, we're going to take your guns away, mm. um, can turn violent and can turn violent quickly. Um, not because of the protesters, but because as we've seen undercover cops um, and whatnot. And we can get into that subject a little later as we talk through. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess my personal journey, right, is mm -hmm. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical Korean, Korean setting now and also Korean American setting. Um, my dad was, uh, my dad is a very, very conservative white Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and his sort of thing for, claim to claim is that I'm not racist because I married your mom and I had you, um, ah. which is indeed the most racist and colonial thing that you can say, right? <laughs> um, right? But it was sort of me reconciling, it was sort of me, my faith, my upbringing mm -hmm. was coming into clash with who I was as a person, as a queer Korean, mm -hmm. as a multiracial Korean, as someone who was sort of discriminated against. Um, even with the comparative levels of privilege I had, being multiracial, multiracial American, Asian American and light skin slash white, like has a lot of like comparative privileges and comparative disadvantages. So there is a lot of like push and pull there mm -hmm. trying to find my identity. It wasn't really until I got to college where I thought about dropping out of the church because I was just so done with uh, sort of the evils I saw in Christianity mm -hmm. until I attended the only Presbyterian uh, PCUSA. I want to be very clear about that because PCA, <laughs> PCA sucks. Um, PCUSA Church in Providence that I went to my first congregation that was plurality POC, um, but like oh. POC, POC, Black, Latinx, Asian, um, Indigenous, oh. and then the leader, the leaders, the pastors um, were a Black woman um, trained in liberation theology, wow. and a, a white woman who was among the first people to graduate from Princeton in non-gender segregated classes. Wow. Um, so it was a, it was a kind of so it was kind of there I saw intersections coming through and that was where I started to reconcile my identity because I was sort of I was one of those like awful people who was just sort of like I'm not Korean American I'm just American I'm like, <laughs> I totally like, was like that I totally right, like that right right I think I think a lot of Asian Americans go through this right and multiracial mm -hmm. people who are sort of shut out of 
all communities that they sort of like have right. uh, lived experiences in um, default to that, right? And they become, they become conservative or toxic or whatever you want to call it. So it was sort of in that moment that I started to deconstruct who I was, mm. go back to the fact that like the definition of white doesn't include multiracial people, right? That That's literally against the definition of white. But the definition of Asian American, the definition of multi of Korean is can include multiracial people, right? This is mm-hmm. these are more inclusive movements that I sort of actively found homes in. Mm-hmm. It's still really hard because Asian Americans can still gatekeep, um, whether yes. you're multiracial or black or brown. Um, or we exoticize. Or we exoticize or fetishize in a lot of ways, right? I've yeah. been told by Asian Americans I don't like you because you're not pure. I've been what? told by other I've been I've been right, like I was called dirt blood a lot when I was growing up in Korea. Or I've been told by other Asian Americans, oh, hey, I love me a happy, right? Which is completely sort of boiling down me to exoticism. So right. a lot of those things took a toll, but it was sort of yeah. finding my voice in Asian American, inclusive Asian American movements, mm. progress, first liberal, then progressive, mm-hmm. uh, very important difference between the two, right? Yes, but which I, started, I only recently learned. Right, right. And like me too, right? This was a very recent journey for me on -hmm. the comparative in my life um, that I sort of became more and more involved with other movements that had more inclusive meanings, right? So example is um, sexual assault and rape doesn't see, uh, right? Like, so there are statistics within it that tell you that tell us that black and brown, like, uh, women and trans women are the most mm. likely to be assaulted in those situations, right? But ultimately, those movements against sexual assault and rape are inclusive. They're intersectional, right? So you, when you attend one of these protests, um, you sort of see yourself no matter who you are in these protests, right? Mm. And then when you dig deeper into these protests, because you want to, you want to sort of communicate with people that you're at these protests with, you want to find unity and solidarity with these people, you're right. going to meet people, you're going to meet particularly people who are not from the same intersection as you are, mm-hmm. speak their story and give truth to statistics like black and brown people are more likely to be killed by the police or raped or sexually assaulted, right? And yeah. if they're queer, like, forget about it, right? That's even worse yeah. um, statistically. So it's really through like those small movements of first sort of getting involved in Asian American spaces mm-hmm. that make room for people like me, that make room for my intersections, that ultimately branch out into other protest groups or other intersectional movements. Because ultimately, if you're an Asian, a progressive Asian American group or progressive Asian American immigration group, a lot of them are going to pair with, not all of them, be careful who you talk to, but a lot of them are going to pair with Latinx immigration groups. A lot of them are going to pair with uh, Black Lives Matter, who is a very pro-immigrant intersectional group, right? And that's Mm -hmm. how you start getting involved in uh, other groups that extend beyond your immediate intersections. It's like, start with yours. If yours is a good group, they are going to ultimately pair with other groups Mm -hmm. who have different intersections from yours and create a more unified and solid movement. So that sort of, and that sort of happened in college, out of college, I moved to Washington, D.C., uh, expecting to get a job with the Clinton administration. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't happen. So um, my first like major protests uh, like um, that were big, that include thousands of people in Washington, D.C., it was like the Women's March oh. uh, originally. It was the March for Science, the Climate Change March, um, mm-hmm. things of this nature. But when you start talking to sort of the activists who organize things like March for Science and Climate Change March, they were like, you know, 
Ultimately, this is a racial justice march too. The people who are most affected by climate change uh, yes, right, are yes. black and brown bodies. It is, a, it is an economic justice, it is a racial justice, it is a um, gender justice, it mm. is a queer justice movement, it is the green mm. movement, right? So yeah. it was really through like those movements where you dig deeper, want to learn more about them, that I sort of came to the place I am now, which is sort of attending every protest that I'm physically able to. Yeah, dude, that's deep. I didn't think of it that way. I mean, I, yeah, that's deep. <laughs> yeah, and there, are, by the way, there are like many ways, right, that people can extend beyond their intersections and get involved with these. This mm -hmm. is just sort of how I got involved, which was start with self-care, start with deconstructing mm -hmm. your identity. Mm -hmm. If you find those correct groups that allow you to deconstruct your identity, um, they're going to ultimately be intersectional and you can branch out into other movements as well. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a good... I hate litmus tests, but I feel like there's just so many groups where you feel like uh, that seem to exclude versus include, and like, like, oh, I, I only wanted to get better for my people, when, when that's not the ultimate goal. I personally don't think right, like, because ah, to butcher kings, cool. Like, we are not. Until all of us are free, none of us are free, right? But like, right, exactly. And so, but I think it took me a long time to get to that point. Um, it, it, it's hard, right? Because some of some groups will seem progressive or liberal, mm -hmm. but in reality, they're not. And not to call any of them out, like the Asian American Christian Collaborative (AACC), but I didn't say that. <laughs> um, they sort of started with a statement against racism for COVID nineteen, right? Right. And they completely ignored the but they were against queer Asian Americans, right? They didn't explicitly protect them and they allowed homophobia to sort of run rampant, but also they didn't acknowledge the fact that blacks, browns and indigenous people are actually died of higher rates of COVID-19 than right. Asian Americans did, right? right. Um, and that ultimately, yes, Asian Americans faced a lot of crap over COVID and don't get me wrong, that's racist. We need to stand the fuck up to that, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. they didn't, but in this narrative of trying to protect themselves and protect us and uplift our voices, we ultimately also suppressed voices that were really also affected by COVID instead of uniting right. with them. Mm -hmm. So you really need to take a look deeper look into these groups that you decide to sort of march with or donate to um, and, and do the litmus test. Are they willing to admit where they are effective and where mm -hmm. they are also comparatively privileged? Right. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing actually about life because to to constantly see other people's points of view, you know, and I think that's what art is good for. Like, like part of what attracted me to BTS is because it allowed me to see just how how similar but different we are. And then it introduced me to like I feel like it's very expansive. Like the like I feel like not only are BTS transgressive and activists in within like the rights you know and like but in terms of how they see art like everything that they do is expansive and um so i think that's a good way to see to like find groups that align with your thinking and also just to remember also that um there are lots of ways to protest <laughs> right, exactly. And I think BTS sort of says that too, right? So mm -hmm. I think you brought up a really good example where you're sort of like, you're, you're an, you said you're a kitty armchair activist. Is that the phrase that you used earlier? Uh, what did I say? Uh, 
Yeah, it's like a keyboard, keyboard. Oh, oh. Right. So, like, it, it's really interesting, right? Now that I think people are sort of like, well, I'm afraid of protesting or they're, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. They're immunocompromised right, yeah, like they're, they're people. There are people who could give, if they catch COVID, even if they're asymptomatic um, at a protest, they could spread it to their elderly, elderly people who are likely mm -hmm. to have serious complications or death uh, or their children right and that's not something that's great they're and frankly like marching and protests aren't unfortunately are often not disability friendly right they uh can be extremely ableist even with the best of intentions so the question is really are you able to protest if you're able to protest if you do not believe that you will be a sort of impediment to the protesters, then you should protest. But if you have medical issues, if you have disabilities that make it hard for you, like for t not, I'm not, not just talking about sort of what we think of always as um, disabilities, like those, those with mobility issues or those mm -hmm. with sort of uh, chronic pain issues. I'm also talking about people with fatigue or like right. uh, claustrophobia. Um, you, you do, or like even asthma, right? Like if you get tear gas and you're on asthma, God, God save you, right? Oh, I do have asthma. <laughs> right, like God, God save you. But if you have children, these protests can get violent, right? The like, right. The, it's something to consider. How safe will your family be? But if, if God forbid, if you don't return from one of these protests, um, could your you need to take every consideration to the people around you under account, right? Yeah. Which is what I think is sort of the beauty of like looking at this through like a BTS lens, right? Is they've done protests in so many different ways mm -hmm. um, that it's a really good template to go off of. So you mentioned, so you know, you know, you have kids, Virginia, right? Um, okay. and, this, and I want to credit Virginia where this is due. Uh, Virginia and I wrote, helped write a uh, letter of solidarity from Asian American to Black Lives Matter. Um, and we were discussing language, right? And it didn't occur to me that some of the language that I was using was very sort of potentially ableist, right? But not only just ableist, but it was sort of disclusive people who physically couldn't get to the protest for other reasons like children or elderly or um, transportation, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of Virginia and the other people in this chat that said, well, like I have children, I need to like make sure that they're taken care of as well. I am a, I am a mother, right? Like these protests are dangerous and they really are. Um, so the question is how, if you can't attend those protests, what can you do? Um, so first of all, checklists, like when should you not, when should you slash versus not attend a protest? One, do you have a disability, immunocompromisation, or a different medical condition or a psychological condition that could potentially hamper your ability or potentially hurt you or those around you or hurt the protests themselves? Uh, a good example is if you have asthma and you have an asthma attack in the middle of a protest and you're in the middle of a 100,000 person crowd, it will be very hard for medics to get to you, right? If you are a mother and you have, let's say, uh, two children and you get shot with a rubber bullet, what happens, right? Um, if you are, let's say, someone with a disability and some idiot starts a stampede or a riot um, and the protest isn't disabled friendly, um, what happens there, right? So there are a lot of things to consider. Two, what type of protest is it? Because oftentimes, protests such as, okay, this is gonna be, this is so bad, but unfortunately it's true in the American context. Protests that don't often focus on a racial context or a racial lens explicitly 
are often peaceful or given a pass by the police. Example. Yes. Women's marches, green marches, right. and then marches that are generally for something vague like a $10 minimum wage or a $15 minimum wage, but that aren't that aren't that aren't explicitly sort of like Black Lives Matter, and that is why we need a $10 minimum wage or a $15 minimum wage or a $21 minimum wage. Those movements can serve have protests, and there is rarely any violence or rarely any physical risk in that manner. Protests that focus on a racial justice perspective and that centers POCs in um, the most vulnerable, often Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, are those that are prone to violence, not because of the protesters, but because white supremacists will yes. co-opt and start riots. Mm -hmm. Those who want to start riots and loot will do so. Mm -hmm. Or the police will start these. Uh, police will start violence and chaos, mm -hmm. often disguised as um, part of a protest. Example is: I recently attended a Black Lives Matter protest um, the day after my first one, where I was almost hit by two police vans, and the girl next to me was beaten with a baton just for standing there. And one of the police vans miss hit my sign, but missed my fingers by about two inches um, as it drove through us. Um, there are a bunch of other stories to tell about that one but for the sake of time, I won't. Um, but the second day when we went out, I was three feet away from a person uh, who I couldn't really see the facial features of. And that's, you know, normally fine. Maybe they're trying to protect their identity for whatever reason. Um, what I didn't notice though, was that this person had a colored wristband, just a solid colored wristband. And solid colored wristbands in protests are often undercover police and they're markers of undercover police so that different undercover police can communicate with each other and know who to arrest, who to beat, who not to. Um, I was three feet away from this person. I didn't know the wristband at this moment, but he took a, a brick and he threw it, he threw it, slash smashed one of the windows next, a, a few feet away from me. And that started police saying, this has gone violent. We need to suppress, ah, the, we need right. to suppress the rioters. Um, and they just started coming at us, tear gas, baton, like oh batons. Um, I don't believe rubber bullets in this situation, but I was sort of, in the middle back rather than the front lines of this protest itself where the police line was demarketing the protesters. Um, things like this, right? Um, and I only know this the colored wristband right after when he sort of like was this, like this, so that other police, can, uh, undercover cops can find him in the crowd. Right, because he doesn't want to get hurt. <laughs> right, because he doesn't want to get hurt. Um, but he's fine and, with other people getting hurt. That's cool. Right, but he's fine with the protesters getting hurt, right? Um, so it was it was chaos. It was scary, but also like there were physical ramifications. Um, that weekend, over a thousand people in Chicago got arrested for staying past curfew. Uh, there are looters and rioters. Um, I want to also dispel this, right? Some looters like have legitimate reasons to loot big box stores, right? Um, I went to a grocery store across the street from me after the looting. And I talked to one of the grocery employees and. I was actually on my way to Chinatown to interview a queer Asian American who was attending Black Lives Matters for the diverging Asian American magazine that I was going to write for. And I talked to one of the cashiers and she's like, yeah, we got looted and the police and state troopers were across the street from us and they did nothing as we got looted. And she goes, but it's really interesting. Um, these looters aren't the ones that you hear about on the news that are stealing from like sneakers or from POC businesses. Uh, Jewel Osco is a major, a major grocery chain in this area. Uh, they stole what we consider, what should be human rights. They stole tampons, they stole birth control, they stole plan B, they stole medicine, and they stole non-perishable foods. There is very little alcohol and very little cigarettes missing, right? Like these are people who um, 
and I shouldn't really say stealing, I should say reclaiming, frankly, right? Um, these are people who were reclaiming their dignity and reclaiming their human rights because um, the system had failed them. Um, and this is what the this is what we don't know about. We label, I think we too far times on the progressive side, label looters and rioters as just white supremacists and cops. And that's true. A good portion of them are white supremacists and cops, but we don't consider the human side of this. A lot of these people who are looting and rioting are also people who need medicine, who need food. Um, yeah, that's, I, I didn't even know until you mentioned it and that just broke my heart. Right. And it was, it was just sort of a aha moment for me. Um, The baby's like, but I have things to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. They're very cute. But um, so I think it's really a question of, do you have the emotional energy, the energy mm -hmm. itself, and are you not at risk? Or it, you're, you're always going to be at risk at these protests, but are you on the comparative not at risk? Or can you handle and accept the risks that come with protesting? Right, right. And keep in mind, at Black Lives Matter protests, at any protests, um, people like me have a lot of privilege. Um, I am light-skinned, I am a male, um, rather a man, I identify as a man. Male is not the correct terminology there, um, apologies. Um, and I am not going to be the first or the initial target, right, um, of the police. Um, in the ensuing chaos, when targets are everyone who's not the police, might be, but these are all things to consider. The reason why I choose to use my body physically to protest is because I am able to, is I don't have immunocompromised issues and the medical issues I have are comparatively treatable and not dependent on sort of, or rather protests won't easily trigger them. Because I also think that as an able-bodied uh, man and a light-skinned person, like it is my duty to be there in person. I don't have children, right? I don't. I don't have a lot of people to consider. I live by myself. I have my mother and my sister, but I ultimately know too that like my mother and my sister um, will be fine. Uh, it may suck, but if anything were to happen to me, they'd ultimately be fine, and I can deal with those consequences. And they can also, frankly, learn to live with those consequences if something were to happen. And but, I just want to sorry. intercede. Sorry, yes. I want to intercede and say that just because yes. you have different like situation, like. It doesn't mean that you have less to lose. I do want to affirm yes. that the things that you have to lose are important. Right, and that right. It's not. It's not a, like a comparison game of like, oh, just because I have children, I have more to lose than you do. It's, right. It's just. It's just different things that we have. It's to a, lose. right. It's a different type of loss, and ultimately, a loss that it, that I have calculated for myself that is acceptable for sort of in-person physical protesting. And if you can't do it, like, don't worry. There, there are no lesser forms of activism other than slacktivism and other than like sort of just Instagram influencers pretending like they're sad. <laughs> um, but, like, but like the other forms of protest that I'm about to get into, the other forms of resisting empire and whiteness I'm about to get into, there are no lesser forms of it. They're just different mm -hmm. forms. And, they, and a movement needs all of them. A movement needs protesters. A movement needs people who will donate. A movement needs people who um, provide bail money or rides. And a movement will also need people who just provide shelter. So I think the second biggest and most obvious one is 
donate. Donate your time, donate your money, donate your energy, anything that you can afford to these groups and protest uh, protesters. Uh, money from these groups often, they're not for-profit groups, right? They'll go directly to helping and maintaining social justice policy initiatives, but also protesters. So BLM runs a massive bail fund and it bails out everyone. You don't have to be black or brown, right? Like this is, this is why I think people don't realize is BLM also amplifies literally everyone else's voice, even if it's not black or brown. Um, primarily black and brown voices, but there was, there was a white supremacist who tweeted out, this white guy was shot by the police protesting for BLM. Where's his memorial? And someone retweeted, oh, it's funny because BLM actually made them a memorial and tweeted that out at like 6 a.m. and said, but they'll find me for their family, right? Um, so intersectional movements are like this, right? You donate to one and it's going to go to a good cause or they're going to spread that sort of money if they think they have enough resources. So a lot of bail funds that are run by mutual aid groups, run by PSEs, or a lot of sort of protest movements like BLM will often share resources. They'll share the money that you give to them and put it toward other uses or other programs or other activist movements that may also need it. Is that what mutual aid means in the sense like they will help other... Yeah, yeah, BLM is a mutual, oh, don't, don't get me wrong, BLM is a mutual aid movement, right? It's it's mm -hmm. her POCs, particularly Black, Brown, Indigenous POCs coming together saying um, the government is shit or the policies that the government enact are not um, providing solvency um, for various reasons. And we will look out for ourselves and create that change externally um, and put external pressure on the government um, and they also do lobbying, like internal pressure and whatnot, right? But like BLM is a mutual aid group that seeks to uplift all POCs and all oppressed peoples, right? Right. So mutual aid is this concept of sort of communities come together. Communities can be divided in many ways in this situation. And they look out for each other. They take care of each other. And that's what's happening right now is different communities are coming together and they are ultimately taking care of each other. This is, I think what we're witnessing right now is sort of, small mutual aid networks are no longer saying that we can just keep to ourselves. They're becoming part of a national mutual aid outcry. Mm. Um, and that's what your donations help fuel is mutual aid groups like yeah. Black Lives Matter, like um, uh, New York Immigration Coalition or Asian mm. Federation or um, National Immigrant Integration Coalition. Okay. So, okay. So you've mentioned physically being at a protest, if you are able, uh, money and then what are other ways we can protest yeah absolutely um a really great way to protest is um if you can't provide financial funds or uh, or be there in person is uh be someone's contact at a protest i had three friends who for various reasons couldn't be at the protests uh say hey if you need a place to stay, I'm in this neighborhood. If you're running from the police or if sort of you're past curfew, because a lot a lot of strategies for police right now are focusing on uh, declare curfew uh, with 20 minutes left for people to get home in these large metro areas. And it's going to be impossible. So we'll just arrest all of them, right? So those people who are providing sort of their houses as shelter or providing safe haven or providing bail funds or providing sort of updates about police movements are also forms of protest and resistance. So a good friend of mine uh, who also offered her house a shelter to multiple protesters just in case, also sent me on a non-trackable message app that I won't mention here, uh, Signal, um, 
just in case police are listening. Um, and she was t- texting me updates about what police movements looked at because she had a because she knows someone. Her neighbor had a police scanner, right? And her neighbor was sort of like, "Hey, Christine, the police are talking about moving to X Y position." And she would text me, the police are going to move to X, Y position. And I was able to not only protect myself, but I could talk to organizers at these protests and say, hey, I heard from someone with a police scanner that they are coming in this way. Twitters and movements and outside neighbors are seeming to confirm it. I want you guys to have this information so you can plan and lead the protests uh, accordingly. Um, and it helped sort of change the path of the protest and make sure that the we had minimal police clash, right? Um, this, there's a really great example. There's someone in Washington, D.C., um, and Washington, D.C. had a curfew, and the police and the military were starting to arrest people. Um, and there was no way for people to get home because uh, with these curfews and blockades, you can't call an Uber, public transport's down. Most people in D.C. don't have um, bikes or a car, so they were just sort of wandering in the streets about to get arrested by police who were going door to door trying to arrest people. There was someone who owned a house and he had over a hundred protesters sheltered in his house for eight hours and he provided medicine oh and he provided medicine and food and water and shelter and the police came banging at his door trying to get in without a warrant by the way and they kept saying and they kept trying to open the door and have him invite them in because the moment someone invites the police in the moment it's legal for them to just start arresting people or Though police have also been known to use the tactic of saying, we heard someone needed help in this house. Don't believe that. That is another tactic for police to try to get permission to enter your house. This person said no, closed the door, locked all doors, and for eight hours until curfew broke, he hit all 100 plus protesters. That was his former protest, right? Um, I don't know if he donated. I don't know if he went to a physical protest. Probably not. He was in his house before curfew, right? What we do know is that he used the resources that he had to shelter people to offer food, money, water, and bail funds and police updates. And that's how you can also do sort of this is be there for someone who is protesting. Um, beyond that too, there are other ways. Um, BTA stands, right? Uh, if you see If you see police activity, if you see police movement, if you see police technology, and you have tactics to overwhelm it, to crash it, to sort of take over or co-opt supremacist like hashtags, like white lives matter, do it, right? Flood it, right. like st- help start that movement. It doesn't look like a lot of people are afraid of getting likes of losing followers, right? But sort mm-hmm. of these BTS stands and a lot of podcasters like Virginia, like put out the statement being like Black Lives Matter and they weren't afraid of the consequences of losing followers. And instead sort of their social media helped overwhelm um, police technology that was being used to search for protesters as well as protest leaders and organizers. Um, it was really funny. I logged into Twitter for my job one day um, and I saw White Lives Matter trending. I'm like, oh my God, what is this bullshit? And I was really pleasantly surprised when I clicked on it and it was just all K-pop videos and K-pop webcams and like people recording themselves reacting to K-pop videos um, or dancing to K-pop videos. I mean, it's it's great. <laughs> right. And that was and that was the sign that sort of and and I think I think we really need I want to focus on this one for a little bit. This one was really important. Most people don't understand the context of who BTS fans are in the United States, right? They're not me in Virginia normally. They are normally they're normally younger, right? They're normally a lot of data suggests that a lot of them are younger POCs, 
um, with less financial resources, often working minimum wage jobs or no jobs, that can't donate, that can't go protesting, that don't have the means of protesting, um, or that don't have the means of donating financially. But K-pop stands did what they could with the resources they had, which was crashing police apps, um, co-opting and destroying white supremacy um, on social media. And it was, it, was, it was a really good demonstration of, one, the power of BTS and Jin's face, um, and two, um, <laughs> as well as his abs. Um, but Behind also- them. <laughs> Right, Behind right. Them, I, you coward. <laughs> I, I personally think Jin kind of went on, went on a webcam, flashed it at his abs and said, go. And then the, like, the, the K-pop stance just mobilized, right? I would have done right. so. But it was, a, and two, it was a really good example of, you don't need money and you don't need to attend a protest necessarily or even like have the resources to be there for someone to also be part of the movement, to be a co-conspirator, to be a protester. Right. When I use the word protester, I don't just mean boots on the ground. I mean these people as well. And I think there's a lot of stigma behind using social media for these movements, especially if you're not black or brown or indigenous, because it's often people just change their profile picture or use a hashtag and they think it's done. They think they're like, that is my good woke deed for the, for my lifetime. Like, God bless. I'm going to heaven. Um, that's Blackout Tuesday, anybody? <laughs> I know, exactly. Blackout Tuesday being a really prime example, but this is how you use social media to be, not a performative ally, but to be a co-conspirator because you have tangible goals and effects you're listening to and centering black and brown and indigenous voices that are telling you, we are going to get arrested or, uh, or we are going to be under most threat. We need you to provide distractions against the police or to do something against white supremacists that won't give them bandwidth, that won't give them media attention, but, but or won't give them names. And what did what did these people do? They they took over White Lives Matter and they destroyed it, right? And the ultimate irony here being it's a POC led. It was POC, right? Like BTS, BTS in the American context are POCs, right? So it's like right, White totally. Lives Matter trending with POCs, right? So um, awesome. As well as crashing a Dallas police app that would have led to the arrest of many, many more protesters. Um, and that was a really important demonstration on mutual aid and different forms of protests. Um, and that's something I really, really want to stress in this podcast is there are many, many ways of protesting, and that is one of them as well. And then I would also like to mention, I, I, I'm sure you're getting to it, but I, you, you poor thing. I'm very long-winded. <laughs> no, 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 you just, you've provided a lot of labor. <laughs> and I, I, you know, if you need the transcript for this to write your actual uh, article for Diverging Mag, that's... Oh, I already, I already did that. And Symphony Chow was like, we might need to turn this into three articles. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome, because that's less content we have to think of. Um, but, like, other forms of protest are, like, looking at the... And, actually, I have you to thank for this, because Ed uh, DM'd me, and he's like, hey, you're, like, the... Like, we should write stuff for the Living Justice column at Diverging Mag. And I was like, yeah, we should. Yeah, 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 smart. Oh, shit, I'm the Living yeah. Justice editor. Yes, the baby doesn't like me. He's a, he's a potty mouth. But he's, but like, and I was like, oh, crap, I have power. And right. I didn't, and I forgot I had it. And not even forgot, like, I just didn't consider it power. You know what I mean? Uh, and I had 
and I had earlier this year, I had told myself I was going to take my position for influence seriously. But I had thought of it only in terms of like my career, how to get an interview with BTS, like things like that, right? Like, um, so, but you know, like, I think we're, we're so used to like thinking that we're powerless that we don't consider the actual roles we have. So whether it's your role in the PTA or whatever they're called now, but like, and saying, hey, we should talk about how, how our school uses its funds to right. help right or whatever like just whatever your spheres of influence even if you right. don't have actual important right. quote-unquote important roles just your and role as a person in your spheres of influence i'm really glad you brought that up that's really important right is the difference between sort of slacktivism in writing versus actual activism in writing is does your writing have a call to action does it have demonstrable steps telling people do this or here are the multiple things you can do to support this movement right so the articles that Virginia writes that I try to write um, around social justice aren't just us complaining about how much we hate the world, go black lives or matter, right? It's not just that, it's also us saying, here are seven ways that you can do, seven solid steps that you can do to support black lives. And here's our call to action through writing. Like that is the heart of like an activist writing movement. Um, that's the heart of an activist podcast, right? This is why Virginia and I are giving you different ways to demonstrate. This isn't just like us being like, yeah, we we hate the world right now. This is us telling you to like, here are demonstrable steps to take, which leads me into another one, right? Like write your congressman, write your senator, write your governor, write your mayor, write your head of the police department, right? Like write, write, write and call, call, call and tell them I am X person in your constituency and I do not approve of what you're doing. Um, here are policy steps um, to take. And a lot of places like Black Lives Matter actually have scripts for you to say when you call or write saying, when you call or write your government official that you're going to do so, here's what you should demand, here's what you should say, and here's how you present it so it's the most effective. And there's and what, nothing wrong with just copy pasting, right? Like, and there's nothing wrong with copy pasting, right? like, actually. Like a lot of us feel like, oh, we have to write something original. We're like, well, I was not, a sociology major i can't do this <laughs> no you don't have to that's the best part right is you you don't need to write something um necessarily original because there are a lot of resources out there and someone's done a lot of the labor for you you can if you want to just make sure it centers black brown and indigenous voices in the case of blm and the protests going on right now but like i think a really good example is minneapolis's police department is have announced that they are going to start defunding the police slowly over a number of years. Um, the city council rather said that they have the votes to do this, should they go forward with the votes, and that their plan will instead have community action programs, right? Communities will decide how they want to sort of handle their own situations as well as law enforcement, plus investing in social programs, social movements. And some, and that's the great part is someone listed saying, it's not just because we it's because we protested in the streets. It's because we called our representatives and called our mayors and said, you will not be in power next year if you do not do this. It is because people donated. It is because K-pop stands destroyed Twitter for two days. It is because we crashed the Dallas <laughs> police app. It's because we wrote and had calls to action. It's because of all of these things that social and political and policy change should happen. I think as activists, as POCs, as uh, gender minorities in the case of like Virginia and other people that I talk to, it's really easy for us to get 
really tired and really depressed when we don't see immediate results because we're only one part of the equation or only one part of the puzzle, right? Like me as a protester on the streets, it, it gets tiring physically, but it also gets tiring because I'm out if we're, I'm out there four days and I'm not hearing anything from my city council to do the policy measures that Black Lives Matter are putting out there, like I get dispirited. But it, I don't see it from the full perspective because I, because I can't do all it. Some people can do all these things at once, right? And that's great. But for people like me who have financial limitations or physical or um, occasionally physical limitations or I don't really have the or room limitations um, or resource limitations, um, I need to remember I'm just one part of the puzzle. Um, and ultimately, when that puzzle is put together, that's when we see the social change or the bigger picture and the big things happening, like Minneapolis announcing that... Um, they're going to shift away from a police-oriented model into a community-centric model. Into Dude, I thought that was fake model. news. When I saw that, I thought it was fake news. Oh, my, my jaw dropped. I was like, am I reading The Onion right now? Like, who's right. holding my leg? I, 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 even saw the check. Right. I even saw the check, and I was like, you know, maybe they faked it. <laughs> no, no, honestly, right. I was just like, maybe this is just a ploy by people, by white supremacists to get people to stop protesting. Being like, yeah. Yeah. But it's not. It's nine council members which form a super majority on the city council came out at a rally and said we have a plan we're going to shift away from police focused models into community funded models and the mayor of minneapolis said he is pro reform but not excuse me pro this reform and the nine city councilors who performed the super majority said deal with it we will override your veto if this goes to if this goes to your desk and you try to Veto it, um, and that's radical action. But it was really interesting if you read the different Twitter accounts, the different press statements that all these members of the city council who ultimately chose to do this were. A lot of them were POCs, some of them were not. But it was really interesting. They all mention or they all center and stress different actions or different parts of the protest movement that spoke to them that got them to do this. A lot, and all, all of them are like, my constituents are worried and called me in pro, and not so many words, told me that they will vote me out or, <laughs> hand my, or hand my ass a suitcase out of my nice city office, right? But then they also mentioned there are donations. I've heard stories. I've seen pe people documenting police brutality. I've seen protesters. I've seen loved ones getting hit. I've, I've sheltered protesters. I saw the mm -hmm. hashtags trending on Twitter. And I think... That's what's really powerful is we are pieces of a puzzle that make a bigger picture. And yeah. that's when we start seeing everything come together really easily. Well, I feel like that's a lovely place to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for your time and your labor. Uh, no, thank you for your time and your labor. Uh, uh, thank you for also like, thank you. Like this should be really said. I hope Virginia's like viewers like know this, right? Like Virginia, Virginian, like the reason why I respect Virginia so much, right? is like in the chats when we were deciding to write these things, right? There were uncomfortable moments. Like we cried a lot, right? Like there was a lot of video <laughs> chats or like text chats where we like, we just like kind of cried because we had disagreements about language. We had disagreements of like what these things are going to look like. But like Virginia taught, Virginia is part of the reason who taught me that there are different ways to protest than just being on the streets. And those forms of protests um, ultimately help spur social action too. And they're not, they're not lesser than like physical protests. They're co-equal and they're co-equitable and they all go towards the same justice-oriented goal. So I like, I re and if you look at Virginia's fire social media, uh, Virginia's <laughs> also been, Virginia's been calling people out in 
her industry being like, if it took you this long to say this long to say Black Lives Matter or this long to not care about losing followers, you're part of the problem, right? Uh, she said it in a much different way than that, but like that was sort of like the gist, right? And like this is using your power to do something to affect change. So. We have people like Virginia to think. We have yeah. uh, protesters on the ground to think. We have people like, um, we have organizations like Black Lives Matter to think. Um, but be be one of those people. Just yeah. go out there and find what you're good at or what you can do. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, thank you so much. Please, this, it sounds so awful to say, but please like and subscribe, hit the notification bell, you know, subscribe on all your podcasty platforms. So ultimately, be safe and uh, make good choices, choices that are expansive and inclusive for all people. Yes, uh, absolutely. Thank you, Ed. No, um, thank you, Virginia. I always love coming on your uh, show. It is <laughs> one of my favorites. I listen to all of your episodes. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, stop it some more. All right. <laughs> so, um, all right. Be well, everyone. Bye.